0: Hello and welcome to the NLCC Sermon Recap Podcast. My name is Preston, and with me today is Ben. Hey guys. It is 4th of July week, and we are going to tune in in a second to another message in the Being Jesus in the 21st Century series. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to talk with Ben and just get a little bit of context about what this sermon is about. So, first of all, Ben, why did you choose this topic?
1: Well, I think that uh, within the context of our, of our sermon series, and with it being 4th of July, you know, that only falls on a Sunday every few years. And so um, I kind of felt like I had to, <laughs> I kind of felt like I had to, had to address 4th of July and, and the independence of our nation and our love for our country. And at the same time, uh, how Jesus would interact in that space and, and, and what it looks like for us to interact in that space.
0: What was difficult about preparing for this message?
1: Um, it was very difficult in the sense that Jesus doesn't say a whole lot on politics. He doesn't speak a lot to like directly towards, towards this kind of a subject mm-hmm. for us to discuss in that kind of a way. And so that made it a little bit difficult. Um, but really I think also just the, the temperature and the climate of our country right mm. now makes it really hard Yeah, because you want to um, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm proud of the country that I live in mm-hmm. and, and I have a certain level of, of joy by being an American. Mm -hmm. And and I love 4th of July. That's a great holiday. It's a great time to celebrate the freedoms that we have. And I'm, I don't want to ever be accused of not valuing or, or loving those things. At the same time, I have a higher allegiance. Mm. And so um, just like anything, I think that there's lots of different idols that exist within our culture. I think the idea of, of country and, and the political landscape, I think for some people's an idol. And, and so Trying to speak on those things in the context of Fourth of July can get a little bit touchy. Yeah. And so uh, that, sure. it's difficult uh, to try to navigate through that without offending people or, you know, unintentionally offending right. people um, and making sure that you're actually challenging them in appropriate ways.
0: Right, well, thank you for bringing that extra context to us. Let's go ahead and listen in on this message on being Jesus in the 21st century.
1: question, right? Where are you from? That can, that can create all sorts of different types of responses, all sorts of different types of ideas. Uh, maybe when I ask that question, you think of a specific place. You think of a specific, like, like a place on a map, a, a, a name of a town, or the name of, of maybe the state you're from. Maybe it's a country. Right? Like, like it has a lot of different kinds of ideas. Or maybe you don't even go to those things. Maybe you think of past experiences or, or past, like, like maybe it's not a town, maybe it's a school. Maybe it's, maybe it's something like that. When you ask that question, where are you from, a lot of different responses can come out. Now if you ask me where I'm from, you know what I'm going to say. You know me, you know where I'm from. I was born in New Mexico. That's a surprise for some people. But I'm one of those people, I'm, I'm, I'm from Texas. I, I am from Texas. Where I was born, I was born in the hospital that if you would have like been on the top of it, you could have seen Texas from there, okay? Like I was so close to being born in Texas. I'm one of the people who, who grew up in Texas. We have this saying of, you know, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got there as quick as I could, right? And so like, that's, that's my story. My family moved to Texas when I was six years old. And at that point, I didn't even know what I was missing until I got there right? Like, like I'm, I'm from Texas. I'm all about it. I wear Texas stuff. I've got a Texas tattoo. I, I, I have Texas stuff all over my house and in my office. Like, it's, it's, it's obnoxious is what it is, really. I have a lot of it, and it's everywhere, and it's absolutely everything. I have a shirt that's my favorite shirt to wear on the 4th of July. This isn't it. I tried to look a little bit nicer for you, okay? But I have a t-shirt that has, like, the shape of the United States on it, except that it doesn't have all the individual states. It has the state of Texas on there. And then instead of all the other states, it has just kind of written out into the shape of the United States. It says, ain't Texas, right? Like that's my favorite 4th of July shirt, right? Like I'm one of those obnoxious people. I'm probably more proud of being a Texan than I am an American. And that's dangerous to say on the 4th of July. And I know, and that's why people hate Texas, (laughs) Right? It's why people hate people from Texas. I get it. I understand. And I'm still like all a part of it. I, there's another shirt that I would love to have. It doesn't completely suit me, but it's a shirt that says introverted but willing to talk about Texas, right? And that's, that's a thing. Like people from Texas love finding ways to tell you that they're from Texas and they're willing to have that conversation. They wanna bring it up. They wanna be all about it. That's, that's a part of it. And I've struggled since living in Northern Indiana because I don't get the same sense from you. Like I don't feel like there's just a whole lot of people who are just like, oh yeah, I'm from North Liberty, Indiana. Or, or no, I'm from, I'm from the great state of Indiana. Like I don't, I don't feel like there's that same sense of pride there should be. I'll tell you right now, I would rather live in northern Indiana than in west Texas where I grew up. It's much more beautiful here. The weather's fantastic, all those kinds of things. When I ask the question, where are you from, where does your mind go? What do you think of for yourself? What is your story? Maybe for you, it's not the place. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's not the location or the, the location of your birth. Maybe for you, it is like the school that you went to. And so for you, maybe you think, like you tell people, you know, I'm from IU or I'm from Purdue. I had someone last week tell me that they were an IU family and that there's also another school that's in the same state, <laughs> right? Like sometimes we're defined by where we're from. And then we're also kind of defined on where we're not from, right? Like what I'm not a part of, who I'm not going to be, right? And there's some of those competitions. And so for you, maybe you would like to talk a little bit about Notre Dame and Michigan or, or some other kind of conversations within that context. When I ask, where are you from? What do you think of? And, and then, you know, I am very well aware that in this room, we have people who are not from the United States, People who have a different story. People who are from a different location. People who are very proud of where they're from and equally, yeah, there we go. I was waiting. I was setting you up. I was waiting for you, Andy. All right. Very proud of where you're from, but also equally proud of where you are now. in a, a sense of, of pride and, and, and contentment that there is something about being in the United States of America that there is a sense of pride and a sense of joy and a sense of, of, of accomplishment even and, and that there's this idea that, yes, I can be proud of where I'm from and I can also be proud of where I'm at. So maybe you think in those terms. Maybe you think of your country. Maybe you think of, of what this is. We've been going through a sermon series called Being Jesus in the 21st Century. And, and we've kind of looked at different ways that Jesus has interacted with in the culture that he's at and the time and place in which he lived. And we've asked questions about what did Jesus do and what does that look like translated into our world now? And today we have to ask the question, what would Jesus do on July 4th, 2021 in North Liberty, Indiana? What would he do? How would he interact with this day? How would he interact in this kind of a context? What, what kind of things would he do? What kind of things would he say? What would it look like, right? And the problem is, uh, you know, last week we talked about the difference between what would Jesus do versus what did Jesus do, and we kind of talked about that a little bit, and we can ask the question, well, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus didn't really celebrate July 4th. That's not, that's not in the text. That's kind of a hard thing together, but there's some things that we can pull from Jesus. Like, like Jesus actually really liked parties. Jesus really enjoyed celebrations. Jesus loved being with people in celebratory situations and and, and festivals and feasts. And he liked liked interacting in those kind of large parties. We see him at weddings. We see him uh, going, like we talked about this last week as well, going up to people and saying, hey, I'm throwing a party at your house. You need to invite your friends. Like he was all about having those kinds of moments. And so we could look at this today and say, well, I bet he'd be up for a cookout. Like that makes sense. I think Jesus would probably show up. But then there's some other things. Like when we think about like, like the nationalistic idea of, of how would Jesus interact and intersect with how uh, the, the, the perspective of celebration of a country and what does that look like. There, there's, some, there's some interesting things within Jesus. Like, like there's some expectations of him. That he's this Messiah and that he's going to come and he's going to kind of create this new kingdom. That he's going to come and he's going to overthrow this government. There were some people expecting him to engage into that political banter and go into those spaces. And Jesus pretty much just said, no, that's not what I'm here for. He kind of abstained from those kinds of conversations. There's, there's more to it than that. There, there was even, even like the, uh, the, the nationalistic pride within the nation of Israel when Jesus is alive and, 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 and this Jewish people that have kind of merged what it means to be Jewish nationally, but also religiously, and, and the merging of these two ideas very closely related. I would say much more tightly intricate than even what we experience within the concept of Christianity in America. And there was this attitude of superiority. There's this attitude of kind of looking down on anyone who wasn't them. And, and you see this in the Gospels. Jesus, as he interacts with, with his disciples, as he interacts with large crowds, that there's times when people kind of want Jesus to make a stand about how great they are, especially in comparison to everybody else. And there's times when he's questioned about why he would talk to somebody who isn't one of them or why he would interact with someone in this kind of context or this situation, why Jesus was willing to, to, to care about people who weren't on the end. And Jesus made it very clear that we're not any better than anyone else. That people who aren't Jewish, that people who aren't Israelites are just as loved by God as those who are. So how would Jesus interact on a day like this? The reality is we don't have a ton to go off of, but there is a book. There's a book in the New Testament written by Paul that at first glance you wouldn't think has a lot of political language to it. But some deeper research has has revealed some things about it. There's a the book of Philippians. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles and get there and get ready, we're going to be walking through some different things in Philippians. And, and what I've found over the last couple of weeks is I've kind of worked on this sermon and and thinking through how to engage this subject and this topic. I came across some stuff on Philippians that that showed some of the language that Paul used to this church that would have been highly Um, highly political, that it would have been uh, very relevant to them in their culture, that it would have been very much so not in conflict with their culture, but taking the things that they already celebrated and the things that they loved and making sure that it showed them who Jesus was. Does that make sense? And and he kind of spoke into that space. And and so what I found out, the, the first time that we're introduced in scripture to Philippi, that's a city That that was within the Roman Empire. The people who lived there were called Philippians, and he writes this book, this this letter to them. The people in Philippi were uh were were kind of it's a special situation. Philippi was a Roman colony. It wasn't like a place that Rome had overtaken. It wasn't something that they'd conquered. It wasn't something that got pulled into their empire. It was actually something that was started by Romans. It was something that was created by them. In fact, that the earliest founders, the majority of the earliest founders for Philippi were actually military veterans, people who'd fought for Rome and had worked on its expansion and had created this community. That as a colony, Philippi wasn't something that had been conquered and then and then had this a role to play in service to Rome, but that it was actually like a, a, a leading city, that it was a valued place, that people there even got like, like tax breaks because they weren't overcome by Rome, but that they were actually a participant in kind of leading and creating and, and expanding this empire. There's all sorts of value here. And so when you think of, of patriotism, when you think of a, of a group of people or, or, or an area that would have been very patriotic and would have been very proud to be part of this Roman Empire, this isn't, this isn't like most of the rest of Scripture. okay? When you read through the Gospels, you find a people who don't like Rome, who are pushing against, who want it to be gone, who are tired of the oppression that they're receiving from it. That's not what we find in Philippi. This is a group of people who are proud of Rome and are proud of, of intersecting with it and being a part of it. They're proud of their service. They're proud of, of being a part of this incredible empire that was the top of the world in this time. So when Paul writes to them, he says some things that are kind of unique. He says some things that to our ears as we read and listen through, it's not going to stand out to us, but for them there's going to be some things that they would have latched onto, some imagery and some language that he uses that's really significant. Stuff like uh, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. The first part of the verse simply says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that seems, for us, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but that's not the actual like Greek language of what's communicated there. That, that phrase that's used there, conduct yourselves, that's a uh, Greek word, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to do it in one term, all right? One sorry, Polydomi. And I don't know if that's right, because I don't know Greek, all right? But I, I did my research, I studied it, and this word polydomi, It means conduct oneself as a good citizen. It has an aspect of citizenship to it. That that as he's speaking to the Philippians here, he says, conduct yourselves as good citizens. And then he adds to that in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What Paul does is he says to these people, you need to be good citizens. And for them, that's easy. They know what that means. They know what it means to live in, in a Roman land and to cooperate with the authorities, what it means to be a good Roman soldier, a good Roman citizen. They would have known these kinds of things. That's simple for them. And yet Paul takes it and expands it into a good citizen of heaven. Uh, not just a good citizen of Philippi, that, that actually being a good citizen of Philippi is a part of what it means to be a good citizen of, of heaven, being, being a good citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I wanted to do some research on what it means to be a good citizen. And so I went to Google because that's the most reliable source, right? And I typed it in, you know, what, what is a good citizen? And I kind of found some different answers, whatever else, as I'm scrolling through, I found, I found a test, it said 10 areas of testing to figure out whether or not you're a good citizen. And so I thought that would be incredibly valuable for me to share with you today. And so I click on it and I go to it. And the first, the first like, test point is your ability to accept a friendly stranger. Okay, That sounds like a good citizen accepts a friendly stranger. The second one is sitting politely for petting. That caught me off guard. The third one was appearance and grooming. Number four was walking on a loose lead, five walking through a crowd, six sit and down on command and staying in place, coming when called, reaction to another dog, reaction to distraction, and then the final one is supervised separation. Now as I went through this list, it kind of got more and more confusing for me, and I realized that I was on the American Kennel Club's website, (laughs) and they, I didn't know this, maybe you need to know this, right? Um. Your dog can get certified in being a good citizen. Like, that's a real thing. Like, you can go through and do the training of what it takes for them, and they'll give you, like, they'll come and they'll test your dog, and then they'll give you a certificate saying that your, God is, or your dog is a good citizen and that there's actually benefits to that. Like, I'm hearing this, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, well, why would I even want to do this? That some places will, like, cut off, like, an amount from your rent, Or from different, like, there's actually benefits to you like having certification that your dog is a good citizen. It totally took me somewhere completely different. And I don't know, maybe some of you need to hear what it looks like to be a good citizen. I don't know. But that's what Paul said, right? Paul speaks to this Philippian church. And he says, you need to be a good citizen. And that being a good citizen of your community is the same as being uh, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that it, that it kind of goes both ways. And he uses this image, he uses this language, that would have resonated with the people who heard it. There's another thing in, in verse 27. As you continue in that verse, uh, Paul says, Then whether I come and I see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, again, that seems pretty simple and straightforward for us in our ears. But if you are a former Roman military leader or a soldier who served, if you're a Roman military veteran and you hear that language, it stands out significantly. There's a, there's a famous uh, war strategy known uh, within the Roman Empire uh, called a phalanx. I don't know if you've ever heard this or if you're familiar with this. But it was this idea, whenever you went into battle, instead of just kind of lining up across a field and then going at each other, and it's a lot of these one-on-one fights, that the Romans would kind of pack in tightly. They'd get in shoulder to shoulder and they'd have their shields in front of them. And that when they moved, they moved synchronized. And that, and that they, they moved in formation and they, they moved together. And what happened was the tightness of this group, the, the intricacies of how they would line up and how they'd fight side by side, that, that they actually weren't one man, they were one army. That, that, that they, that they kind of took on something bigger and larger, and that when the opposing army would line up and see them, they wouldn't see the one person that they were going to fight and see who could win that battle and then move on to the next. But what they saw was this massive movement of men formed as one. Now, we lose a little bit of that when we read this verse, but as Paul's speaking this, he's speaking this to people who are going to hear it. And he says that, I'm hoping that as a church in Philippi, as you're functioning, that you're recognizing that you're moving as one man, that you're united in one spirit, contending as one for the faith of the gospel. That, it, that, that this idea that we have of what it means in our political sense, in our cultural sense, in my, in my act as a military veteran, like that's a great thing. I hope that you're also doing that for Jesus. Does that make sense? that you're doing that as a church, that there's a united front within you and that you're moving forward in that way. There's a, there's a section in Philippians chapter two, uh, which I've said for a long time, you've, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this. I think every sermon ever preached could somehow talk about Philippians chapter two. I think everything in the Bible, you can look at any other passage in the Bible and find a way in which it's connected to Philippians chapter two. It's this masterpiece that Paul writes about who Jesus is and his humility and yet in his incredible power. And, and, and the honor that he's due. And, and as he's even saying these things, he can't help but just start singing. Like as you read it, he breaks into poem. Like he can't even just tell us about how great this is. He breaks out in song, writing out this incredible verse of who Jesus is. And it's just this beautiful thing and it kind of reaches its climax there in, in around verse 10. And Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a beautiful picture. And we read that, and that's kind of just a simple thing. We take it at face value for whatever it is. The Philippians would have heard that differently. A community that was incredibly loyal and gave allegiance to the empire of Rome, who who pledged allegiance to their Caesar, had no problem in bending a knee to their leader. They had no problem in confessing Caesar is their Lord. It was what they did. It was a common practice of theirs. It's part of living in that culture and celebrating the nation, this empire in which they lived. And Paul doesn't tell them that they shouldn't do that. He just says there's a day coming when every knee is gonna bow and every voice is gonna confess, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And it's this beautiful picture. It's this beautiful idea, and for them, that would have kind of stung their ears. They would have felt that a little bit. They would have recognized that there's a little bit of conflict in which the the world that they live in, the culture they live in, and what it means to be called to be a follower of Jesus. It reminds me of this interaction that Jesus has in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, there's a a really interesting dynamic. There were these two groups, uh, political groups in Jesus' day, that did not get along. One of them is called the Herodians. Now, that word comes from the word Herod. Herod was kind of a ruling family of Israelites who had partnered with the Roman Empire. And that's essentially what the group of Herodians are. It's a political perspective that we will get further along if we partner with Rome instead of pushing against them. And what they found out was that if you partner with Rome, it's incredibly personally advantageous. It's not really good for the nation, but it's good for us because they got more money. They made more money. They got more political positions. They got held into a higher esteem and and authority and power locally, all those kinds of things. And for them, it was very, very valuable. And so their strategy was, if we just partner with Rome, it's good for me, well, then there was another group, the Pharisees, and we talk a lot more about them on a much more frequent basis, and they were completely anti-Rome. They hated Rome. They didn't want to have anything to do with Rome. They felt like anyone ruling over them who wasn't Israelite, who wasn't Jewish, was a complete abomination, that it was a com- just awful against what the Word of God says and, and who their God is and, and any sort of rule of anyone else's absolute oppression. And they were kind of right about Rome. I mean, they were oppressive, and their taxes were awful, and the people, the, the, the common person, felt the weight of that and had real issues with them. And these two groups are on opposite ends of this spectrum, okay? So there was obviously a lot of conflict between the two of them, but they found a common enemy in Jesus. Neither of them really liked Jesus. And in this one moment, Mark chapter 12, they ask a question to Jesus as a way of kind of trapping him, and somehow collectively together they can win. And they ask Jesus the question, should we pay taxes to Rome? That's a brilliant question. Because if Jesus says yes, the Herodians are going to like it, the Pharisees are going to hate it, and the vast majority of the community is going to turn on Jesus because they're going to see him as someone who's only in it for himself. And they're not going to trust him. He's he's clearly not the Messiah because he's here to overtake and give us freedom. And if he's going to say, yeah, just keep paying taxes to Rome, then clearly he's not who we think he is. And if he says yes, he loses his audience and he loses his influence. But if he says no, if Jesus says no, he upsets the Herodians. He makes the Pharisees happy. He makes the community happy. But what he's done is he said something that is like causing an insurrection now. That he's given this group of people freedom to now rebel against the nation of, of Rome, that, that they can fight against this, Rome, uh, this empire. And, and what that's gonna lead to is him being arrested and him eventually being crucified because he's causing a rebellion. Jesus can't say yes, he can't say no. Do you remember what he does? He asks someone in the crowd for a coin. And someone, you know, in my mind, they kind of like you know flip him what's called a denarius, one of their coins. And Jesus takes it and he holds it up and he asks a question, whose image is on this? Do you remember? And and someone says, well, it's it's Caesar's. And I think in that moment, Jesus flips it back and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And it's this interesting moment where where he kind of responds in this way, and, and, and the, you know, I can't imagine how everyone in the crowd would have felt. Like, you, you need to understand what this even this coin is. Like, this coin having, for, for a Jewish, for someone who's faithful and serious about following God, for them to carry the image of an emperor in their pocket on a coin is fairly blasphemous for them. And so there's, there's a certain level of hypocrisy even in this question. Even as they toss him a coin, they're acknowledging that we don't want to be under Romans' rule, but if we keep their money in our pockets, it's to our benefit. Like there's a little bit of hypocrisy here in how they're living. And it was certainly blasphemous because within this coin, underneath the image of Caesar, it would have had the words divine Caesar underneath it that there was a perspective, there was a belief that Caesar himself, the emperor of Rome, right, that the top guy, that he himself is God. Like that's how they would have viewed him. And, and then on the back side of it, there was language on it that calls him high priest. For a Jewish person to be carrying money around with the image of someone who isn't their God, with those titles on it, is absolutely blasphemous. In fact, if Rome wanted to find out the best possible way to offend the Israelite nation, this is what it is. Like, make them use this money. And there's some hypocrisy here. There's some blasphemy here in how they're functioning and working through this. And Jesus responds just by simply saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In Romans chapter 13, Paul puts it this way. He he says that we should respect our governing authorities. We need to respect the people that God has put in place. And ultimately, he lands on this. Paul says, give what is due. That you give what is due. That part of being, if he's gonna define what it looks like to be a good citizen, then you give what is due. And if that's taxes, then give taxes. If it's revenue, then give revenue. If if it's respect, then you give respect. If it's honor, then you give honor. Interesting stuff. Paul speaks in to this church and this place, and he takes something that they hold very precious, the person that they hold in high esteem, and he says, One day, one day everyone's gonna do that. Everyone's gonna bend a knee and everyone's gonna proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as the church, we need to make sure that we're doing that even now, not waiting. Perhaps one of the most significant things in the book of Philippians that Paul says comes from chapter three, starting in verse 17. Paul says this, he says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ many live as enemies of the cross of Christ their destiny is destruction their god is their stomach their glory is in their shame their mind is on earthly things but our citizenship is in heaven if you like to write or or mark things in your bible i'd encourage you to like circle highlight that word but there in verse 20 because it's so significant It's so significant. Verse 19, Paul paints this image of this world that we're living in and the conflict that exists and that he reminds us that there are actual enemies of the cross of Christ and they live in ways that are different than us and they live on earthly things. They they focus on, their mind is on earthly things. That sounds like our world. Paul's saying this to the Philippians but that sounds very familiar and very practical to us. And then he says, but our citizenship, is in heaven. That word citizen—that that's a close relative to the word that we read in, in Philippians chapter one, where he talks about being a good citizen. It's a very similar word, but it's different, and it's and it's different in a significant way. It has a little bit different connotation. When when this word is used, that that our citizenship is in heaven. What he's what he's using here. This word he's using is, is used to. Um, it was used even like pre pre. New Testament times and different Greek literature, and it referred to a group of people, like a colony of people who were out of place. Uh, they, they, were, they were in a country, and they were living in a certain place, but they were actually citizens somewhere else, that they were foreigners. They were residents in a foreign city, and their citizenship, their allegiance is somewhere else. Paul challenges this church to recognize that we live in a world that isn't ours, that this isn't our home, this isn't our place, this isn't our land. We live in a world where people have earthly things in mind, but our citizenship is somewhere else. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Roman colony here, they owed allegiance to Rome. It was their homeland. I think you could say the same for us about America. They, they followed uh, Roman traditions and customs, and they looked for Rome, looked to Rome for protection. I think you could say the same thing for us concerning America. And yet Paul speaks into them and he tells them that we are resident aliens. Our homeland, our commonwealth is in heaven where the Lord is, the one in whom we actually owe full allegiance to. So imagine how those words would have sounded to the people who well understood the power of the state and what loyalty to the state entailed. Imagine how those things would have fallen on their ears. If we go back to Philippians chapter two, after Paul has kind of broke into this poem and this song, and he's written this beautiful thing of who Jesus is and what he's done. If you jump down just a couple verses down into verse 14, Paul says this, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. What's really significant in the book of Philippians is that you aren't going to find anything in Paul's writing that's going to suggest to this church that somehow they need to adopt a strategy to, to infiltrate the governing forces of Philippi and then eventually Rome, and that somehow if they work together, then they can make this into a Christian nation. You don't see any language like that. You don't see any emphasis on anything saying that we need to try to figure out how to become a, a Christian nation. What's fascinating to me is that eventually in history, and you know this, eventually in history, Rome becomes the center of Christianity. That's significant. Like in this time, as Paul's writing these things, Rome is almost the uh, enemy of Christianity. And yet over time, eventually becomes where Rome becomes the center of Christianity. Some people feel like it still is. That, that, that it's that location where, where it all kind of began and where it's in the middle and, and where it went from there and became worldwide and all that kind of stuff, right? That it's it, the center, that that's where it all exists and starts from and builds from. And When Paul writes to these Romans living in Philippi, The message is this. You live in a crooked and a depraved generation. And the way in which you will care for this generation, the way in which you will love this generation will not be through political action. It's not gonna be through government structures. It's gonna be through you shining like a star in the universe. That the way in which people in your dark, in this dark world, in fact, Paul says that we should live in such a way that we're different from the rest of the world. That it should be as obvious as the difference between darkness and daylight. That we should live in that kind of a manner, and that if if there's anyone out there in that darkness who's wondering what it takes to get to God, that the way in which they're going to get there is they're going to plot out that map according to the stars that are around them. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the way in which people will come to God is going to be through us shining that truth of who He is in a very dark and depraved world, and that's how empires change. That's how the world changes. That's how lives interact and and, and change. It's not going to be through policies. It's not going to be through decisions. It's going to be through the life of the church shining as stars. What would Jesus do on July 4th, 2021 in northern Indiana? How would he interact with this day? I think that Jesus would come to your cookout. I think he'd enjoy some all-beef patties I think he'd enjoy having a crowd. I think he'd love a parade. I think he'd enjoy some, some fireworks at the end of the day. I think he would look through the landscape of America and he would find great things of incredible value. That he would recognize a nation that has tried to build something on a foundation of things that are found in scripture. That, that he would see good things that exist and good things to celebrate. And he would look in and he would say, you guys are doing some things right. And I think that he would even look to us as we're celebrating a country that we live in with a sense of pride, and I think he would look at those things and be proud for us. I think he would enjoy that and celebrate that with us. And I think at some point, maybe in a one-on-one conversation, he'd want to remind you about your real citizenship. He'd want you to remember that there's actually something better, that you have an allegiance to something that's even better, that's more consistent, that's more pure, that's more beautiful, that's long-lasting in eternity. And we can celebrate this day, but we can also celebrate something better. And that's a beautiful thing. We're gonna kinda close out on that thought, but what I wanna do is I wanna spend some time praying with us, just as a community here. And I'd like to spend some time praying over our nation I'd like to spend some time praying over this church that we would be a people who shine like stars, that our community would know how to get to God because they can chart out the path through the stars who are existing in their community. That's a beautiful picture, and that's a beautiful thing to be able to pray for. And so I wanna invite you to pray those things with me. Our God, we are so very grateful for this day We're grateful for this day in history. We're grateful for this day uh, throughout the years, over the last couple hundred years. We're grateful for what it represents. God, we're grateful that this nation has pursued freedom. That we have pursued the rights of men. that, That we have pursued living out Christian doctrines and practical community ways. God, I'm grateful for this country. And deep down in my heart, I believe there's no better place to live. I also know that that I'm not any more important to you than anyone else from any other country. I know that your blessings pour out in different ways. I know that you love all your children. And God, today we celebrate what we have in this nation, and for good reason. God, we also look around and we see a crooked and perverse generation. We see darkness all around us. We see the evil of men. We see sin that exists. God, we see all the ways in which this world is not perfect. This country isn't perfect. And in those moments, God, we look to you and we thank you for our true citizenship. We thank you that we can, that we can live in both of these worlds, that we can live in this one as resident aliens, that we can look and see that our, that our home is somewhere else, something that we can look forward to and anticipate. In the meantime as we live in the tension of those two realities, God, would you give us the ability to shine like stars? Would you help us to live within this world, within this dark space right now, and in a way in which we are bringing light of your goodness to this world? That even in the midst of celebrating all that this country stands for, that we are bringing something even better to this community. God, may we lead people to Jesus. May your will be done. We're grateful. Amen.
0: We hope that that is a prayer that you can, uh, you prayed with us and you continue praying as we seek to uh, make God our king and not have any kingdoms or idols that are here on this earth, but um, that we make sure that we turn our attention to God alone. Thank you for tuning in and watching this sermon with us. Uh, We look forward to doing it again with you next week.